Welcome to On the Bobble Podcast, Episode 6. I'm your host, Sebastian J. Ueda, and with me is my co-host, Yuki Lee Bender. Today, our topic, we're going to go into a deep dive of the feature draft covered in the Pro Tour coverage. And we're going to be looking at Matt Rogers' Day 1 draft and Tarek Partel's Day 2 draft. But before we go on not to that, I just want to say congratulations, Yuki, on top 8-ing the Calling in Lil. How was, the, how was your trip? Thanks. Um, yeah, my trip was great. I spent about two weeks total in Europe. I went to uh, Netherlands, Belgium, and uh, Lille for the so France uh, for the for the event. Um, and all of it was really awesome. It was my first time visiting those places, and it was just nice. I, I did a kind of a combination of testing in the evenings and then more touristy stuff during the days with a couple of like more dedicated full testing days um, in the Netherlands with some friends. Um, the event itself was pretty, pretty good. I thought the venue was nice. Um, it felt quite spacious. I I think the venue had like more character than New Jersey did, but it was quite warm. There was no AC in the venue and I think it could have been really hot. Um, it ended up being okay because the temperature dropped, but like just before we got there, it was really, really warm. And on the night of the players' banquet, it was actually like quite warm, and people were like really worried that during the day when everyone was in there, it'd be kind of miserable. But luckily, that didn't end up being a problem. Um, I guess I'll talk briefly about how the events went. Um, in the PT, I drafted and I was on Icelander. Um, so it was three rounds of draft to begin with. And basically, right away, I noticed that my uh, the person passing to me was picking draw my cards. There was a draw my common missing and pick two. And then pick three, there was a rare missing, so likely a dragon. And then uh, pick four, there was another draw my card missing. And I was sort of hedging between Phi and Icelander in that draft. Um and ultimately, I ended up settling on Icelander because I got a pick, I believe a pick five blue Aetherhale. Um, so it seemed like a pretty good reason to be an Icelander. Although I did note that like the f- like Phi was seemingly flowing. It was kind of like all the Phi commons were there. There was the two Phi commons in every pack. The only bad part was that they were like all the Phi blues and yellows. They were really weak Phi packs. So um, I ended up settling into Icelander, being one of three Icelanders. Our pod had two Phi, three Icelander, three Dromais, and I think one of the Phi's ended up winning. Um, overall, pretty happy with how I navigated the draft. I think my deck was really good. I had strong blue quality, a bunch of Aether Ice Fanes. The only thing that was a shame was my equipment really didn't come together. Um, but it happens. Like I just didn't have the opportunity to take it, and sometimes that's how it goes. Yeah, so you didn't get a cloak? So Yeah, I didn't get a cloak. I just had I only had quelling sleeves and um the glacial horns, unfortunately. Um I did have a opportunity to take conduit, but it just felt like I think it I think it was like either take a blue aether hail or the conduit when I already had the quelling sleeves and it just didn't feel like a meaningful enough upgrade to really justify it. No, that's fair. That's fair. Hail's pretty good, so I think I like that pick too. Yeah, so I ended up losing the mirror. Um, my deck was not particularly good. Actually, neither of us had cloak, but he just like I had more of the Aether Ice Vein type cards, which are normally good in the mirror. But when neither of you can stop damage, it just becomes about who can do more damage. 
And he just had like bigger blues and lots of like ice bolts and red ether hails. So he was just doing more damage than I was. And I just kind of lost the race. Um, yeah, fair enough. How did your um, CC portion do? Um, so I took this ride for CC. I went one and three. And um, yeah, not great. I played against two Bravos, uh, an Oldham, and a Prism. I've picked up one win against the uh, the Oldham player. Um, my games were pretty close. I had a lot of notable names like uh, Pat Eschke, Fino Black, Kale McCreeth, so some very good players I hadn't played before, and it was cool to meet them and play with them. But uh, the games didn't quite go my way. Um, overall, pretty happy with how I played, but I, I do find this format was kind of swingy, especially on the... Um, the rune blades um the, the games kind of even like the bravo games where you think of bravo as a control deck these days bravo is pretty assertive and it just kind of do they hit all their disruption or do they miss when you have big turns and it's yeah it's quite swingy okay and um would you have brought a different deck like briar won the event would you have wanted to play a briar over viscerai or maybe even a different hero yeah so going into the event um i was kind of on the fence between Prism and Viscerai. Uh, I felt like Briar was probably the best deck to bring overall. But um, the issue was that by the time, I guess by the time that I came to that realization, it was so close to the event that I didn't think the edge I would get by having a slightly better deck in Briar would compensate for just the amount of experience I have on Viscerai. Like I've been playing Viscerai since pre-everfest and i know the lines inside and out and i just wound up feeling that that probably matters more than having a slightly better deck so i think the deck choice was fine but i kind of realized that like viscerai and playing aggro in an, in an aggro field is maybe not what i want to be doing in flesh and blood it's just uh the games are really short and not that interesting so i, I wasn't really having a good time um like obviously like losing never helps but even like the games that i won the game that i won it just wasn't that fun Fair um, enough. Yeah. So because of that, I ended up playing Prism in the uh, in the calling, and I was quite happy to get to change decks. And I ended up um, ended up having a loss in day one to a Briar and a draw against a Dromai. We like almost. I almost got decked out. He was quite low. I had double Genesis. I'm not really sure who was going to win. It was pretty close. I probably could have played a little bit faster. I think I got a bit too relaxed. Um, he was like a fellow Canadian, and we were kind of chatting, and it was quite friendly. And then at some point, I'm like, wait, there's 15 minutes left. I need to close this game. And then I made some misplays. And yeah, it was not a game I was super happy with, but um, it happens. And after that, I kind of got like recentered and refocused, and I feel like I played very well for the rest of the event. So. Oh, yeah, so your draw was pretty it. early on. Yeah, I think it was around, I want to say around six. It was day one. So I ended day one at six, one, and one. Um, and basically the, the event had uh, 570 players-ish. And then there was eight rounds day one, five rounds day two, and then cut to top eight. And pretty much you needed to be X and two. I think that there was two or three X threes that made it, but... Picking up my losses rounds two and six, there was just like, I guess there's not a zero percent chance, but like you, like I really needed to win out. 
um, probably everything. And at the very least, I needed to win out until the very last round. And then if I was going to get a third loss, it would have to be the last round. Yeah, that makes sense. Wait, so that means uh, you day two was good for you? Yeah, day two went really well. Um, honestly, I just got really good matchups. I played against um, two Bravos and an Oldham, so pretty much auto wins there. And then um, I played against two Prisms as well. The Mirror, I think, is pretty technical and pretty skill testing, but I think that the the list that I was on is just really strong in the Mirror, and I think that it's if if they aren't on a similar similar list where they have like a combination of lots of yellow auras as well as fractal phantasmoclasm i think it's really hard to keep up because you're just able to like play to the board as well as pressure hand and if they just focus on only auras you just the the blue auras don't really do that much you can't really afford to play them because you need to clear your opponent's auras and then you just don't have as much like offense and you don't have as many poppers as our deck our deck was on my deck was on nine poppers so um yeah it just felt really favored in the mirror um so that was nice. Okay, that's good. So that means you top aided your calling. So you get another PT invite <laughs> or PTI, sorry. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I ended up top aiding. I played a Briar in quarters. And um, yeah, just Briar things. Um, the game was pretty close. We were both at 19 life at one point. I had three auras out. They were pretty good ones. I think it was like Haze, Shimmers, and Parable. You had a Channel Mount in play. And then I drew um, four blue auras that blocked two. He Command and Conquers me for 10 with double Force of Nature up, so I have to block with my whole hand and Crown of Providence, because it's the only way I can block 10. And then uh, he follows up with a snatch and snaps it and draws three cards and keeps his channel and puts me down to like eight or something. And my next hand blocks six. So yeah, not too much to be done. I think that given the life totals and given that I had a miraging metamorph in Arsenal, if I could have survived that channel mount with like even five or six health, um, my chances of winning there are actually quite good. But yeah, he just had way too much. The double The double force of nature with channel mount is just pretty unstoppable yeah that's just like yeah when you, mostly when your hand doesn't block for that much either yeah perhaps if i had like slightly better block values i might have been able to um i might have been able to sink my arsenal because i had the miraging in arsenal i could have sunk it um but i just ended up feeling like it wasn't worth it because if he has another attack, like he has snaps up so he can give it go again, and my one card's not going to ever block it. So it felt like just having the the seven attack to just close the life total, like the, the life disparity quicker felt more important. And it felt like playing more to my out than like, I don't know, trying to block when, yeah, if he has it, he has it. Yeah, fair enough. And then, so you lose in top eight. And either way, congratulations on that. I think we will start to move on, though, and go to the question of the week. So thank you for everyone who uh, submitted their questions on Twitter. Uh, So we'll go over one of them today. And this one is from Chris on Twitter and says, Looking forward to hearing your thoughts on it. I noticed during the weekend of the Pro Tour, a lot of players were down on Uprising as a draft format saying it felt too variable and it really hard to pivot because there's only 14 picks 
picks pack. So I'm, I'm assuming it says 14 picks per pack. Yeah, so this was definitely a common sentiment um, at the weekend. I heard a lot of people just not in love with Uprising as a format. And some of those players were players who also don't like seem like they didn't really like draft, but some of them even were like players that like draft and they were just saying that they didn't enjoy the format that much. Um, personally, I agree to some degree. Like I, I do think that it can be pretty high variance, especially if you're like the, the biggest one is if you're on Phi and the Phi mirror just feels like very going second is a pretty big advantage. And um, sometimes even if you have a better deck, you can't always win. And yeah, I, I think we've talked about it a bit, but the 14 picks per pack does mean that you need to lock in really, really early and gives you a little bit less room to pivot. And I think it's kind of exasperated. It's, like, it's made worse by the generics not being particularly good. Like in, in WTR, I went back and drafted WTR just a couple of days ago. And in that set, you can just stay on generics so long that you have a lot of time to pivot. And like Toa, you can draft elemental cards for a long time, whereas Uprising just doesn't have that available. So I think it's kind of the combination of 14 card packs as well as less ways to stay open. Yeah, I, I've come around to this format a little bit more recently. It's like... I feel like there's a little bit more play than I thought, uh, at least during mm -hmm. the drafting process. But yeah, compared to the other formats um, like WTR, it does feel a lot more constrained. Um, and you do need to just like pick a hero so much earlier that it feels like you're a little bit forced into what you're drafting. So there's like less creativity, essentially. Yeah, I, I think I agree. And I guess I should say that as much as I was sort of saying I somewhat agree with that sentiment, I think that it's a little bit overblown. Like, the format's not great. I think it's probably my least favorite fab format. But I still think that draft is quite skill testing. And I still think that if you've put in the reps and you know how to draft all the heroes and you're comfortable navigating a draft, you will probably end up with a better deck and do better on average more often than not. So I, I still think you can get an edge, just maybe not quite as large of an edge as some other formats. Yeah, that sounds... I agree with that exactly. Okay, uh, let's move on to our main topic today, which is going to be a deep dive into these drafts. Uh, I think we're only going to go through the first pack and maybe a little bit of the second pack for each of these uh, featured drafts. Uh, but these drafts were covered on the Flesh and Blood official YouTube channel uh, on their coverage. And it looks like it comes with the commentary. We're not going to play the commentary on our on the video here but uh we will be trying to verbalize most of what's in the pack and their thought process if we can or and we'll yep. make our own own comments on what we think about their draft yeah and the reason just to focus on the first like pack or so is that that's often the most important part of the draft a lot of it is pretty on rails and we'll just kind of give a bit of a description of like what their deck looks like at the end some of the broad strokes of like what they prioritized um how their deck performed and so on so you'll get an idea of how the draft went but if you want to watch 
the whole thing, including some of the gameplay, check out the Flesh and Blood TCG uh, YouTube. It's, it's all there. Uh, the draft portions are kind of like after the draft. They're, so they're a little bit tricky to find. You watch all three rounds of draft, and then you get to see the draft process. I'm guessing they did that because they probably didn't want people to be able to go back and watch coverage and then see everything in the person's deck. Um, so that's probably why they did that. Yeah, I think that's a good idea, honestly. Yeah. All right, so diving into things right away here, we have uh, day one. So this is the start of the Pro Tour on the Friday. Um, starts off right away with draft. So everybody's 0-0 and wanting to get a good start um, with, with draft. And we have a, a feature pod with Matt Rogers. And I believe there's some other notable names, although I can't remember who was in it right now, but we get to I see. I think Matt it was Rogers Michael Hamilton was the other notable name. Yeah, that does that does sound right. Um, yeah, I remember people saying this pod was quite stacked. So, anyways, let's see how Matt navigates his draft. So he pulls up forward a freezing point, a red aether hail. Blue Singe, so there's quite a few good Icelander cards. He has a yellow Sweeping Blows at the front of the pack. Uh, there's also a red Arctic. Yeah, so it looks like there's like four good Icelander cards in this pack. Uh, on the top of the pack right now, he actually pulls up Sweeping Blow, which is, I think, one of the only playable um, Dromai cards in the pack. Yeah, I believe it's a Sand Cover. Yeah, and during this commentary, he's talking about how there is so many good Icelander cards in the pack, and he wants to pick or to push these the next people that he's passing to into Icelander. What do you think about that, Yuki? It's an interesting strategy. So when I listened to this, my first gut reaction was sort of like, no, you should always be reading signals from your right, which I think is true to a degree but i do wonder if the nature of uprising where you don't have very much time to pivot um, could mean that sending a signal has a little bit higher value because like you're you're not as able to read signals as well and also um, sending signals means you can get the like cooperative partnership on the left so i don't know if i personally would be comfortable taking this yellow sweeping blows it's like very high risk high reward but I can understand the like the the thought process behind it and and how by taking that and forcing other people off Icelander, you set yourself up to be very rewarded. It's just you can also kind of train wreck if it doesn't go well. Yeah, I think so too. It's basically the difference between uh, reading signals and picking up the deck that's open versus looks like Matt Roger really wants to send the signal and let the other people know like what deck he wants to be on. Um, and I think it works really well with Dromai in particular, just because everyone wants to avoid Dromai is what it seems like. And when you are sending the signal that there is a Dromai player on this table, it might be a strong enough signal to be the only Dromai player on in the draft. But the only problem would be that if anybody on his uh, direct right, because they don't get to see the signal until pack eight uh, or pack uh, pick seven, pick uh, pick seven, pick six, seven, yeah. eight. No, pick seven, eight, nine. Yeah, pick seven, eight, nine. Um, if they've already moved into Dromai, it 
might train wreck your first couple of picks, which might not be worth it. Um, but we'll continue watching the rest of this draft. Yeah, maybe like before I move on, also very notable. I think that sending signals for me is like a tiebreaker. If there was, if like the two cards I'm deciding between are very, very close and I can't decide, like it's it's hard for me to pick which one. If I can send, if I can pick one which cuts that hero and sends a signal versus the other one that has like a lot of cards of that hero, I would do it. So like, I would like this pick a lot more if it's a red ember mob, but the yellow sweeping flow is like, a little bit aggressive for me, even though I understand where he's coming from. I don't know that the yellow sweeping blow is putting anybody into Dromai, though, I suppose. So let's carry on. So pick two. He's sorting all the class cards. Notices that the two Dromai commons are still there. It's a red billowing and a blue Embermaw. There's still a bunch of Icelander cards in the pack. Some weaker ones, like Aether Dart. There's also a Rise Up, so a good Phi card that probably goes with the Red Rising that he sent. Or maybe it was a Red Ronin Renegade, one of the head traps that he sent last pack. This looks like a breaking point in there as well. Yeah, so some very good Phi and Icelander cards, um, and that kind of plays well into his strategy. Uh, he does consider the breaking point. It looks like he pulls it forward maybe to stay open, but ultimately settles on the blue Ember Maw. Interesting that he takes the blue Ember Maw over the billowing, but I know he mentions that he really likes the blue Ember Maw because it's a playable blue card. So I can see it. Yeah, I think uh, I think that picks. I, I like that pick, honestly. Okay, next pack, he pulls for the Dromai cards. There's a Sweeping Blows. It looks like a blue. There's a Dust Up, and there's also a Dragon. It's hard to tell which Dragon this is. Yeah, so during the drafts, uh, all of the uh, Dragon's double face cards are replaced with the, the proper checklist cards. So during the coverage, it's a little bit hard to see which Dragons are in their pack, but we can assume it's any of the rare Dragons, not the uh, Mythic ones, uh, because... Looks like he did end up picking this dragon from this pack. Oh, you yeah, want to pause and... the video real quick? Yeah. Yeah, so I just want to talk about this where I think um, Matt Rogers talking about potentially picking up the commons over the dragon. What do you think about this? Yeah, it's an interesting point. He does mention, I do remember him talking about maybe taking a common just to send a stronger signal, which might seem weird because... You, you say, well, like the dragon's a pretty big signal, right? But I think what Matt Rogers is trying to do is rely on his the people at the table understanding the pack coalition and that the back has the 2-2-3 two, two, split and that if there's a Dromai common missing, then clearly a Dromai card is taken. Whereas if the dragon is taken and you see two Dromai commons, that doesn't necessarily signal that somebody is drafting Dromai. So... I don't know that I particularly like this unless it's like, maybe if it's like a red rake or like a super desirable card, perhaps I would consider it. But um, yeah, I think it's maybe putting a little bit too much weight on sending a signal versus just picking the good card for, for my taste. What do you think, Jay? Yeah, I'm also in the same camp of, I'm not particularly sure at least maybe at the pro tour might be a little bit different but if you're at your local draft um not everyone knows pack collation um and not everyone is aware of pack collation so as you said there is a two two three split of the commons of uh every pack there's two 
uh, two it's two draw my two five three Icelander. If is that right? Uh, so it's it's always two it's always two of each, and then the third can be any of the three. But about two thirds of the time, it's Icelander. So it's usually three. And if you see like if you see two 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 repeatedly in the back, and there's like one class card missing, you can kind of surmise it's probably Icelander, like probability wise. But um, technically, it can be any class. Yeah. So even like I I draft a lot, and I'm not like a hundred percent sure of like which what the pack collation is. So. Like maybe maybe all the players at the Pro Tour who's been doing fifty drafts or so uh, might have a better understanding of this. But my general um, general rule of thumb is that people don't know pack collation. So just because they see two draw my cards, they typically won't assume that a draw my card that, that draw my is open or like draw my is cut. They'll just typically see oh big good dragon no. The person to my right isn't picking dragons or Romai cards. is is probably the general understanding that I get. But obviously, this is a pro tour setting. The players are significantly better than the average players, so maybe they are more a little bit a little bit more conscious about pack collation. Uh, but that being said, it's a little bit hard to see if. Everyone is looking for it still, um, and we don't even know how much playtesting each person has done. So mm-hmm. it might be like a little bit too wishy-washy for me to put that much weight into that, um, for yeah. my, at least for my taste. Uh, I tend to agree, and he does end up settling on the dragon um, again. Like they're they're not they are not reds in those colors of, of those cards either, so it's not like they're super desirable. Um, but basically the, the takeaway for pack collation for anybody listening is if you see one class card in the back, uh, that's, so don't count the foil, don't count the rare. If you see like one wizard, illusionist or ninja talented or untalented, then that means somebody has taken a common because there's always at least two of that class. So typically like cutting like if there's like three of that class and you cut one and it goes down to two you're not really sending that strong a signal whereas if there's only two class commons that aren't foils and you cut one um if people are looking for the pack collation they will notice oh there's only one of the class commons and there's so somebody must have taken one so that's kind of like how that works but i agree that especially if it's like a local armory draft i would be a little bit careful about relying too much on this the higher level the draft the better it works Okay, so he shovels up, gets his next pack. Again, sorting to see what's going on at the table. There's another dragon. There's a sand cover and a rake the embers, it looks like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He does pull the dragon forward. Looks like he's just trying to decide which of the two he would like. It does seem like some Icelander cards have been cut here. Um, and Dromai looks wide open, which is great for him. Yeah, it's a little hard to see which exact cards are not the Dromai cards, because they're just left in the back. But looks like, yeah, people are being pretty open, and there seems to be like two of each of each of the other class cards as well. Yeah, and he does end up picking up the dragon, again, sorting the pack. So here we see an Ember Maw, as well as a Billowing Mirage. There's a bunch of Icelander cards, but they look pretty weak. 
Yeah, it looks like there's still two Dromai commons as we were just talking about. So it looks like Dromai is wide open still. Yeah. So at this point, at this point, if I'm Matt Rogers, I might be thinking that, and I think he mentions this as well, that he might be, there's either only two Dromai's or it's starting to look like he might be the only one. You can't quite say that for sure yet, but the fact that there's no Dromai cards been taken so far is, is a very good sign for him. Next pack, we see a sweeping blows and a skittering sands, and ultimately just happy to take that sweeping blows, which I, I agree with. It's definitely the better of the two cards. The block for three is very nice, and the ash generation is is also great. So I think Matt Rogers mentions at this point in his kind of commentary that he's feeling really, really good, and it makes sense. Um, he's getting totally rewarded for his draft strategy, and it's it's really paying off here. Mm-hmm. Once again, two Dromai cards. Sweeping blows and sand cover. Imagine it's got to be the sweeping blows. The sand cover is just not a very high pick. Having like one or two for Iceland is fine, but you don't need to prioritize it. Yeah, it looks like the person to his right's probably drafting on five is what it looks like to me. Um, just because a lot of the there, I haven't seen any of the premium ninja cards in any of his packs. So yeah, yeah it looks like he's on the best, uh, best draw my deck right now. Yeah, and Icelander looks pretty contested too. Like there's there's been Icelander cards, but there's only like two or so, and they're not they're not premium ones. Now he gets yeah. past the Silken form. Is this pick seven? Pick seven. There's uh one two seven cards in the pack. So yeah, looks like this is a uh, pick eight or seven. So that means this Silken form has basically gone. So he passes six cards. That means the Silken form has gone basically all the way around the table. Um, everybody has had a, had a chance to pick it. So he might be the only Dromai at this point. That's what you got to be thinking. Definitely, there's definitely not more than two. Yeah, that's just like a crazy to me that there's a Silken Form in that pack. Like, Silken Form is so good. Like, it's probably like the biggest reason why you want to be in Dromai. And I think at this point, when you get past Silken Form, you just, like, I'm I'm not, not no one's going to move me off of Dromai at this point. And it looks like no one is in Dromai because like, if seven people is passing a silken form, they're not interested in Dromai at all. Like they're not even thinking about it. Yeah, there's a very small chance that it could be someone to your left or maybe like two seats over and they didn't they didn't want to like first or second pick the card. Um, however, the good thing for Matt Rogers is that if that is the case, if one of those two people sitting right next to him that he's passing to um, did end up in Dromai at some point and and like was trying to pivot into it, they would see that he's cutting it and would probably decide against it. So yeah, he's he's very well set up. His strategy is working great. Like he's, yeah. he's signaling that it's cut and the first couple of people who passed the Silicon form can't really get into Dromai because of what Matt Rogers is picking. He's only passing like sand cover for Dromai. So this is it. No one's going to go into Dromai for sand covers. So looking great. Yeah. So next pack, there's just a Skittering Sands. It does look like the other Dromai common is gone. Um, it's hard to know if that's just getting caught this, or someone was speculating. No, on this it, is but... a Dromai common that Matt Roger took. Oh, you're right. So it's wheeled. So the Skittering Sand has wheeled all the way around, but he opts to take the Oasis Respite instead. So And then he reels, wheels the red billowing Mirage, which is just yes. absurd. So he's getting both the commons basically in all of the packs. Yeah. So at this point, he can probably be pretty com- confident that there's no Dromai. Um, it's hard to imagine the red billowing Mirage since it's like a fairly good card. 
um, wheeling otherwise. And again, there's like the dust up and the sweeping blows in this pack. So he took the dragon and both the commons are still in this pack. So he's got to be feeling like... Yeah, this is a clear signal that literally nobody else is in Dromai. Like you are the only seat. You're the only Dromai seat. Yeah. Uh looks like a blue rake and a sand cover. He prioritizes that sand cover. He mentions that he doesn't even really want the rakes because since he's the only Dromai drafter, he's able to just focus on getting Senapis. Wow, there's a foil Senapi and a billowing mirage left in the pack, uh, the, the Dune Breaker. He ends up taking the red billowing, which, yeah, I like that pick. But um, yeah, and then a skittering <laughs> Last Holy pick skittering smokes. sands. Does this mean he started with 14 Dromai cards? Yeah, I think he might have one Oasis Respite in there, but he could have taken a Dromai card. He just chose not to. So we're going to get to see the pack review here, but Matt Rogers is in a great spot. His strategy has really paid off for himself, and he's really kind of capitalized on people avoiding Dromai. Although it's interesting because like this has been broadcasted and people are perhaps aware of it if they watched it. So interesting if it will still work. Looks like he has like three sweeping blows, four sweeping blows, two dragons, silken form, couple, two ember maws, two billowing mirage. Yeah, this is a excellent start to a draw my deck. This looks absurd. Yeah, and at this point, you just you don't really have to be too worried about your colors yet. You want to be fixing up your colors a little bit later. And if you're the only draw my player, you you get to you get your selection in packs two and three most likely. Yeah, as we're noting, he already has three blues and the like, two blue sweeping and one blue ember maw. It looks like so he's in a pretty good spot, and he can pretty much just round out his deck with whatever he likes. And yeah, so I think we can leave this draft here. Um, the rest of it is just sort of Matt Rogers getting extremely hooked up. You can see the rest of his draft on YouTube. But um, he does indeed being the end up being the only Dromai in the pod. Um, his deck is basically full of billowings, uh, sweepings, senpais, and he does have about three dragons, it looks like, by the end. Not exactly sure which ones. Um, but he specifically mentions that he doesn't like the rakes and the dragons as much when you're the only Dromai at the table because they force you to get ash and they can be a little bit clunky, whereas he can basically just play to, you know, like, Red go again attack into Ember Moss and a pie and just do that over and over and over again. And that's just a super efficient turn. And you don't need to pitch, you don't need to get ash, you don't need to, I don't know, worry about hit effects on your dragon. So I think the strategy makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's harder to lose two poppers with this strategy too. Yeah, for sure. Even if you start with the red dune breaker, if they if they pop it, you can arsenal the Ember Ma or you know, you do like a billowing and then you get in for one with the Ashwing. And then even if they pop the Ember Maw, like you've still gotten some damage and a card from hand. So it's still pretty okay. Yeah. And do we know his final record? Yeah. So he ends up going 3-0. Um, there's four Icelanders in the pod and he faces against a five round one and a five round three on camera. And I happen to know that he also faces against an Icelander round two because my friend was unlucky enough to have to get paired into him as one of four Icelanders against Dromai. It was apparently not the most uh, eventful game, as you might imagine. That that matchup can be rough at the best of times, and especially with a deck as um, powerful as Matt Rogers' deck was. So um, yeah, pretty easy 3-0 for him, and not entirely sure what I think of this strategy. A little bit high risk, high reward, but definitely gets rewarded. And 
you know, um, when people aren't aware of people doing this, I can see it working really well. And I'll be curious to see how this works going into like Nats and Worlds, though, when more people are aware of this strategy. This strategy can go very badly if two people tries this exact same strategy where they're trying to cut people off. And if they happen to be like two two seats away from each other, even um, you might be stuck with like five draw my cards, um, like even three or four draw my cards in the beginning. And it's going to be hard to pivot into a different deck um, after that. So yeah, I would be curious to see what would have happened if um, Matt Rogers did get cut out of Dromai um, from his right. But clearly this time he didn't. So it seems like a great strategy to try and go 3-0 or maybe like 1-2. Um, but like if you really need the 3-0 um, in some situations where like going into the second day draft and you have to 3-0 or you're dead, this might be a good strategy. Yeah, for sure. Um, one thing I will mention that's sort of maybe a counterpoint to the strategy is in my pod, um, at the PT day one, um, the person next to me, I think was doing this, they were forcing Dromai, or at least they started Dromai and they picked only Dromai cards and there ended up being three Dromais at the table and they all had a bad time. Um, I think that one of them was the O3 and I think the other two were both one twos. So, um, definitely can go pretty poorly but perhaps matt rogers is confident in his ability to read those signals and perhaps hedge a little bit if it's feeling like dromai is a bit cut i'm not sure or maybe he's just very reliant on that second second pack coming back being good for him um but yeah i guess we don't know since we only get to see when it's wide open okay perfect let's move on to the second draft okay so moving on to the second draft um here we have Tarek Patel's day two draft. So this is for rounds eight, nine, and 10. And I believe that this is the five, two pod. So there, there is, I think there is a seven O pod or at least mostly seven O pod. There might be a couple six ones in there. So this isn't the highest pod, but they decided, they decided to cover this one with, with Tarek. So let's see how he does. Um, really hoping for a 3-0 out of this draft because that sets him up to be in contention for top eight. But even a 2-1 is is reasonable, but he really does need to do well here. So 2-1, two, then you're alive to, you need to 4-0 the CC portion. Yeah, exactly. So um, Tarek opens up his pack. Um, he doesn't fan out the cards quite as nicely as Matt Rogers and organize them quite as well, but it looks like he's looking at an Oasis respite there's a rising uh, Ronin Renegade, sorry. Looks like a freezing point as a mythic rare and a spellfire cloak as his equipment slot. Looks like quite a few Icelander res. There's like a frosting and a red cold snap, but nothing that's like really super prioritized. He's pulled forward the spellfire cloak. Yeah, it looks like really either this or the red Ronin Renegade for Fi, and he picks the cloak, which yeah, I, I like it. Um, I think it's a really strong first pick. I, I started a lot of drafts this way. Pack pick two. Noting the Icelander cards, there's also a red flex at the front. And an Arctic. I think it's a red Arctic, it looks like. Stilettos. A red ice bolt, a blue Aether Dart. So it looks like he's really thinking about Icelander here after the Icelander card. The Phi cards are sort of middling. 
Yeah, so he looks like he's looking only at five cards and Icelander cards at this point. No, 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 doesn't even look. I don't think he's even like considering any draw my cards. They don't look to be particularly good ones, and he ends up taking the flex. Um, it's a red flex, so it doubles as a popper, and I kind of like this. It's like a secret Icelander pick with it that keeps you open. There's a sash of Sandakai here, a red Aether Ice Vein. There's some Dromai and Phi cards, but it's hard to imagine taking them over the sash. I think there's a Rising Resentment, it looks like, a red Rising. And a brand with Cinderclaw, so Phi is perhaps open. Unfortunate, there's a Foil Liquefied in there. So this is really interesting, this spot. What I'm seeing in this pack is that there's two Phi commons. One of them is a red rising resentment, which I think is one of like, that's, it's probably like a bit worse than mounting anger, but it's pretty premium. The cost reduction on it is just really strong. And as much as that red aether ice vein is really good, I think the fact that you're getting past a Sasha Sandicott here is like pretty appealing. He ends up going with the aether ice vein. So really locking into Icelander. And he does mention in his commentary that when he watched this back and talked through it with some people that he thinks it's a bit of a mistake. And personally, I'm not a fan of this pick either. I just think that it's committing a little bit too hard. And as much as Red Aether Ice Vein is a really premium card, I think that the Sasha Zendikai is even more premium and kind of a huge signal and, and just gives you a ton of flexibility. If you have Flex, Sasha Zendikai, and Spellfire Cloak in your pool, you can be anything and you're in a great spot. Yeah, so the one thing that I wanted to note, though, was that because it's a red rising resentment, which is a common, and the Sasha Sandakai, that's two premium five cards that's getting passed to you. So the guy, so the person passing from your right is most likely looks like either Dromai or Icelander, at least from my eyes. And even move, so when the five is slightly open, I tend to like to try and get the five deck because it is just a little bit more consistent, and you do get to like Sasha Sandakai really does let you go over the top when you are in the five mirrors too. So I like picking Sasha Sandakai here and like hedging a little bit to make sure that if I is open, that you have the avenue to get into it. Yeah, for sure. I know that at some point in this commentary, Tarek mentions that they found that they didn't like Fi quite as much because they found the games to be like a little variable and the Icelander matchup to be a little bit hard. So they favor Icelander and Dromai as a testing team a little bit. So maybe that's part of what's going on here. But I think Sasha is just a little bit too good to be giving up. Um, I understand the Aether Ice Vein, though. Like it is a very good card. Um, it's it's defense is defensible, but but I think the sash really opens up your draft. So let's see how um, the rest of the picks go from here. Because if Icelander's open, this pick can help pay off. It's just you have less flexibility is the trade off. Wait, sorry. Before we move on, what why is why why is this pack sleeved? That's a great question. I'm not sure. So interestingly, one of the packs is sleeved, and I I don't have a great answer as to why. Oh, okay, okay. I, maybe I thought maybe you knew so there was like some kind of like thing going around that there was like a reason for a card uh, for a pack of pack of one pack to be fully sleeved. Um, nope, I don't think there was in the other draft. I don't. Yeah, I have no idea. Anyways, um, carrying on. <laughs> There's a dragon. 
some Icelander cards. There's a blue frosting, it looks like, or is it a red? It's a red frosting, a singe, an ice spine. So okay, Icelander cards. It looks like the Phi cards are still there, and there's still there's three Phi commons. Is that a mounting anger at the back, or was that something? I, I think it is, but I believe it's a yellow or a blue mounting. It looks like, and the blue rising resentment. He ends up taking the frosting. So this is really interesting. Um, Phi does seem to be wide open, even and this is something to look for, right? Like when you see three Phi commons like this and the mounting anger even though like maybe the blue rising resentment doesn't feel like a great pick it does signal that because remember we said there's a, the 223 in the back that signals that nobody has taken a phi common from this pack and sometimes if you see a pattern of nobody taking phi commons that can be a good reason to get into phi because uh, sometimes like you know there's just a lot of phi blues and yellows and nobody wants to draft it and then if you pick up on that and you draft it um, you can actually get rewarded later on in the draft. So I think if he has a Sash of Sandakai, I would actually probably speculate on a Phi blue here because the blues are, like, you just need blues and Phi. Um, yes, but because he didn't pick the Sash of Sandakai, the person that he passed to most likely picked it up um, if they're not forcing Icelander as well, obviously. Do you think after you've passed Sash, is it... Is this, is this the point where it's already too late to try and pivot into Phi? Or do you think you would still try and move in? Yeah, at this point, it's really hard. Um, I think that Tarek's in kind of a hard spot because even though there's the dragon, there's a Dromai common missing. I believe there is a Dromai common missing from the last pack. So Dromai definitely feels cut. Icelander, I would suspect, is also cut. There's no ice cards. And even though there are three Icelander commons, they're not premium ones. The problem is, is that even though Phi might be open, he's passed not only the Sash, but he's also passed the Red Rising right before it. And so if he goes into Phi at this point, he's going to be cut quite hard in pack two. And after pivoting late, also being cut in pack two is, is probably going to lead to a pretty poor draft. So I think he's kind of blinders on and has to go for Icelander, unfortunately. But it's interesting how much that one... Uh, that one pick of not picking the, the Sasha of Sandakai has kind of really sent ripples down through his whole draft at this point now. Yeah, fair enough. He ends up taking the blue frost, sorry, the red frosting over the blue singe. I know that he mentions he really likes the uh, three for zeros and he especially really likes the red frosting. Um, what are your thoughts there, would you take the red frosting over the blue cinch? Uh, I really do like red frosting. I think red frosting of all the cards, um, of all of the uh, red zeros, I think it is the best. Um, but I do prioritize blues over reds just in general when I am playing Icelander. I like playing on my opponent's turn a lot. I think it gives me, having access to the blues gives me access to playing on um, not blocking for one turn, playing on my own turn, setting up an arsenal, and then playing on my opponent's turn, which gives me like the highest like highest damage output in one turn cycle. Uh, so I tend to prioritize um, blue cards and then the bigger red card that I play on my own turn rather than the rather than the smaller zero cost reds. But 
I do like um, Red Frosting just because it is an ice card still. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think I tend to agree with you that I, I think I like the blue pick here as well, even though Blue Singe is maybe not super premium. Um, I think that the thing is, is that your deck only wants so many reds. And if it's a premium red here, like I might take like a red Aether Hail over the Singe, but if you're taking a frosting, you have to ask yourself, like, how badly do you want that in your in your deck versus like another red? And I think that sometimes just taking like a replacement level blue that blocks three and it's just like does its job opens you up to being able to take better reds later in the draft because you've like already gotten your blue count. Whereas if you wait to get your blue count up. Um, sometimes you can find yourself with only being able to take other reds and, and winding up with too many or having to take like really, really poor blues just to fill out your blue count. So minor thing, but yeah. Yeah, one thing I just want to add to that though, um, red frosting is a little bit um, of an open one just because like if you have multiple red frostings, they actually don't really um, collide with each other because they don't require a blue to play. Um, so you can just block out and then just play a red frosting for your turn. And it is just like a fine or it's, it's an acceptable result to have like multiple red frostings. Yeah, totally fair. It's interesting. I almost favor the the yellow frosting sometimes, um, specifically if I have Aether Ice Veins, just because they can fuse and then pitch to Waning Moon because you usually don't want to arsenal the red. But I get, I get the idea behind it and I, I do think it is a good card. So anyways... That's- Let's move on. So there's a red cold snap, Toma Duplicity, a dampen, and a red brain freeze for Tarek right now. Sorry, a blue brain freeze. Blue brain freeze. Okay, that's that's a little bit more acceptable. <laughs> so I mean it's gotta be the blue brain freeze here, I think, but maybe maybe the dampen. I think the blue brain freeze is a little bit better. Um and it does seem to be what he has at the front of the pack. But not great. Like Icelanders feeling cut. There, notably, there is like there's a yellow brand, brand of Cinderclaw, as well as a yellow Soaring Strike. So Phi, like once again, if you think about that two two three, Phi still might not be drafted. So this Phi, the Phi in this pod looks really really open. Yeah, next pack has like another Mounting Anger, and two Head Jabs. It looks like I think a yellow and a blue, but still like Phi is really open, and Icelander's feeling pretty cut there's a blue polar cap it looks like and a yellow ice bolt opting to take the yellow ice bolts i know he mentions he because icelander is cut he wants to play like lower blue count and bigger spells and play more on his turn rather than on his opponent's turn um and this is actually like a strategy that apparently they they worked on in pods where it's more contested and i do know what he's talking about but yeah it's interesting next pack it looks like there is a ice bind that he's pulled forward it looks like a red one i believe as well as a brain freeze but i don't think it's a blue i think it might be a red brain freeze and a red ice bind or a yellow ice bind not not fantastic and man, that mm. Phi is still open. There's still two Phi commons in this pack. Can you tell what color that frosting is? I believe it is a red frosting that he gets past here. 
So there's seven cards left in this pack. There's only a red frosting as the sole Icelander card. And um, actually, it might just be a yellow, honestly. Anyways, he's getting pretty cut here and he's in a rough spot. There's also like a blue scar for his car as his next best option or a yellow brother in arms. Like it's really not very good. Um, and I know that he mentions at this point that he's feeling like not, not fantastic about his draft. He realizes that Icelander is cut, but he also knows that he's too deep to really do anything else. And so he's got to just hope that it works out. And, and I think that's the right approach here, but it, it does, it does feel a little bit bad. Like for example, there's the blue, um, is it rapid reflex, the attack reaction for Phi? That's a premium blue in Phi just because it blocks three and it can like sneak over a damage in a pinch to close out a game. But, but like, just like the blue block threes are so good in Phi that like, yeah, I think that in retrospect, Phi was probably the correct deck for his seat. Yeah, if he tries to pivot now, he's gonna run out of playables. Even if he does, even if Fi's wide open, he's not gonna have a good Fi deck anymore. Yeah, so picking up that frosting, the freezing point comes back. He pulls it forward. Not a lot to compete with it. There's a blue ripples, a red cold snap, a yellow. Is it polar blast? Is that what it's called? Yeah, um, polar cap, I think. Polar cap, yeah. So I, I agree with the freezing point. It's not a bad card. Uh, looks like there's a blue sigil or a blue healing bomb. Fairly comparable. He decides on the blue sigil. Um, yeah, I think it's close. There's a yellow arctic that comes around. That's actually a pretty nice pickup for him. Um, I like having some arctics for the five matchup. So getting it with four cards left in the pack is pretty good. Yeah, great sideboard card. Is that a blue oasis? Yeah, that's great. Yeah, blue oasis. So it's a blue and a pinch. I don't like to play more than one, but outside of the mirror. But yeah, blue blue strip is fine. Yeah, just a red cold snap. So you know, doesn't really matter here. And then the sigil. Um, I don't think it was a red. So he's going to review his pack. Um, he does have the cloak. He does have a flex, so he has a popper. He has some good reds. He has a red frosting, red aether ice vein, yellow um, ice bolt. It looks like a yellow frosting as well, and a freezing point. So he has some very good reds. But his blues are pretty thin. Um, he just doesn't have very many. Notably, he never got past an aether ice vein, which means that there is an Icelander to his right picking up these Icelander, pre more premium Icelander cards, like blue um, ice veins. Yeah, he got one like very early, but that was the when he picked it over Sasha Sandakai pick three. But since then, like he really hasn't, like he hasn't been seeing Aether Hails. He hasn't been seeing Aether Ice Veins. He hasn't been seeing like any blue ice cards really for past the first couple picks. Like there's no frosting, there's no cold snap. So definitely feels like he's getting cut here has about three blues total which really is a bit low like you figure if you want like 15 blues in your icelander deck minimum that's kind of five blues per pack so if you're at three you're already like a little bit behind 
has some decent red quality and perhaps he can pick up some more blues in pack two, but um, definitely needs some things to go his way this pack two. Otherwise, I think he could be in a pretty tough spot. Yeah, let's look at uh, his first pa- uh, his first pick of pack two for this one and see what he yeah, gets here. We can see how the, the first few picks go. So there's a blue critical strike as a blue block three. A Findle's Fighting Spirit. Okay, so a Popper. Yeah, that's great. A red Ice Bolt. And a red Polar Cap. I imagine it's got to be the Findle's. The the Ice Bolt's nice, but the Popper's just really solid. Yeah, he's eyeing some of the Fi cards in the back. I wonder if he's having a bit of... Uh... Regret. Yeah, even like the, uh, the Ninja's Shoes. Yeah, that would be nice to have too. Yeah, he takes the Findle's Fighting Spirit. I think that's a pretty easy pick. Uh, the Poppers are so good in Icelander, and that's probably the best one. Yeah, and just it's good, very good offensively as well. It's Glacial Horns, a blue Frosting. Oh no, a red Frosting. There's a Singe, an Ice and Howl Weather Vane, but it's not very Yeah, terrible. nothing great for Icelander, honestly. So really debating between the equipment and the Frosting, it looks like. Which one would you pick, Glacial Horns or Frosting? I think I would go with the Frosting. I think so too, because he knows that he's being cut. Um, if my draft was going really well, I'd take the Horns. But yeah, he, he ends up taking the Red Frosting. And I think he mentions this in the coverage as well, that he's prioritizing it because his draft's not going well, which I like. The equipment's nice to have, but if you're having a bad draft, like you need to get your playables. Yeah, you can always just play the um, the uh, Helios Miter. There's a blue Aether Dart and a blue Singe. It looks like he's trying to decide between. Not too much else. Like a yellow Weather Vane, but you're not taking that over a blue. It looks like he's having a hard time deciding. He picks up the Aether Dart, picks up the Singe, can't quite decide. They're both essentially replacement level cards. It doesn't really matter which one. They both block for three. They both deal one damage. Uh, Singe is, I think, a little bit better against Dromai if you're a little bit worried about that. Uh, Aether Dart is just a zero cost. It's a little bit easier to play. Yeah, I, I don't think it really matters which one he picks. I, I do actually have feelings about this. I think that Aether Dart is the better card between Singe and it. And I think it's not particularly close. Like... Like, like it is close, but I think that Aether Dart is clearly better. And the reason that I think that is I find that the one damage from Singe versus Dromai almost never matters because usually the play pattern is you pop an Ashwing with your Singe, and then they're stuck with cards in their hand and they pitch to stop the one anyways. So I find that the one damage like almost never matters, whereas the zero cost means that you can pitch a yellow, it means you can pitch a blue and then get a um oasis in there or a quell in there so i think that the zero cost actually can often like be worth a point of life or give you an easy way to oasis whereas i feel like the one point of damage from the singe kind of doesn't matter but i agree they're pretty close cards in terms of like pick order it's just deciding between the two i would always take the aether dart personally it's good to know next pack has a red aether hail a blue aether dart and an Ice Eternal. The Ice Eternal is going to be a little bit awkward in his deck with the way that it's going. He just doesn't have very many Ice Blues to go with it, or very many Blues. Yeah, this will have to be the Pale, right? With how he's drafting these decks. 
Yeah, the the Aether, the red Aether Hail is a pretty premium red. I understand it. Yeah, he takes it over the Aether Dart. It's tough. He's really low on blues, but... But the Hail just presents too much damage, I think, that he can't really ignore it. Oh, this is a good pickup for him. Yeah, there's a red... Well, I guess it only comes in red. There's an Incase or a blue Polar Blast. Or Polar Cap, sorry. Yeah, I think this might have to be an Incase here. Um, he just doesn't have enough blues. He could might need to be disciplined and take the blue, but in case I think just does just enough uh, more than the other reds that he just needs to pick it up if if the, if this is his strategy at this point. Yeah, the three for zeros go up when he doesn't have blues to go with it, so I don't mind that pick. Well, there's a blue um, Arctic. Mm-hmm. That's got to be the pick that. There's also a red Aether Dart, but he's hurting on blues. Blue Arctic is premium. I find it hard to imagine him not taking it. Yeah, I would probably take blue Arctic here as well. Yeah, yeah which he, he does. does take it. Makes a ton of sense. Yeah, so this pack hasn't been fantastic for him. It's been okay, but it's it feels like he's getting cut from this side as well, honestly. Or the cards are just perhaps not that good. Um, there's like a blue ripple or a red polar cap. Neither are very good. I think I'll just end up picking the blue because your blue count is so low at this point. Same. And yeah, he does. Yeah, the, the red polar cap is just not where you want to be anyways. And and yeah, he just really needs blues. Okay, uh, I think this might be just the wheel now. So I think we can just wrap up this draft. And let's just talk about how his deck ended up do we know any information on that yep so he ends up with um for equipment he has the cloak and he ends up wheeling that glacial horns that he could have taken i think it's the pick one or two picks after the wheel um so he ends up having some okay equipment but not the full suite by any means um notably by the end of pack two i think he has like six or seven blues it's really low and he ends up having to really scrape for blues in pack three. He does get up to about the 15 or so blue count, um, but a lot of them are not lo- are not very high quality. I think he has like quite a few attacks in there, some like more junky ones. Um, so it's not great, but at least it's serviceable, like the deck functions. His reds and yellows are pretty good. Lots of like ice bolt and three for zeros. Um, I think he sees like some Aether Ice Veins at some point and then just mentions that he's just like, I can't really play this card because I don't have very many blues. I don't have very many like cards that fuse it effectively. Like it's it's not actually a good card in his deck. So definitely something worth considering when a draft's maybe not going your way or your deck's a bit unusual is like what what cards are actually good in your deck. Sometimes that changes. Do we know how his games went? Yeah, so he has his first round on camera against a five player, uh, Oscar Cruz. That's round eight. Um, He ends up losing. It's pretty close. I think he gets the five down to one or two life, but isn't quite able to close out the game. Um, and he, but he does end up clawing it back to go two one afterwards. He says um, on on the camera, "We we don't actually get to see the other two matches, and I'm not sure what he played against, but." Yeah, I, I mean, if I was him and I got I drafted this deck and I got 2-1 with it, I'd be pretty happy. I, I would expect to go either 1-2 or 2-1. Um, so 
yeah, it's going to be difficult beating. Like, even if you're able to win the first two rounds, uh, it'll probably be quite difficult to beat the 3-0. Yeah, so that's pretty much going to wrap up the drafts. Definitely like saw some interesting approaches from Team Dragon Shield here. Looks like they both favored committing quite early and getting trying to get some cooperation with the person that they're passing to. Although notably in Tarek's draft, I don't know that that even happened. I wouldn't be surprised if someone to his left either like directly left or two seats away was also on Icelander. It did feel like he was getting cut. And I think that just sort of highlights why sometimes trying to send signals is not always reliable because especially if there's like, especially for Icelander when there can be lots of cards in pack, um, sometimes people just draft your deck anyways and it can be like a little bit of a rough draft. So yeah, um, be careful, I guess, when you're trying to send signals. Um, know that it's not always going to work. And um, sometimes you can like get frustrated with the person next to you, but ultimately like they're, they're just doing their best and you don't know what they're starting with. You don't know how they value the cards. So, Yeah, fair enough. Okay, uh, anything, any other clothing, closing thoughts on either of these drafts? No, um, I think it was pretty straightforward. Um, Matt Rogers' draft was like very interesting as a strategy of like forcing and trying to signal the table. That's something I'll have to think about and see if it's maybe applicable in the future. Um, Tarek's draft, overall, I liked how he navigated it, except for that one pick on the Sash of Sandakai. I think that was a bit of a mistake. He mentions it as well himself, and we kind of talked about it already, but really kind of shut the door on his ability to switch into Phi, which I think could have led to a much stronger deck for him. But, you know, hindsight, we're here, um, able to watch the recording, go back, rewind. Um, it's, it's different when you have all the tournament nerves and everything going on and you try to make the best choice. The call so. draft as well. So there is that someone, when the judge goes five seconds left, oh, you have to make a decision. And that would that can also lead to some mistakes there too. Yeah, so understandable. Um, I did like how he adapted and kind of like went into this strategy of leaning more to playing on his turn because he realized he wasn't going to be able to get the blues. And I think that might be uh, why he managed to salvage this draft into a two-one was having that prep and that like awareness of okay, it's not going my way. What can I do to make the most of this draft? So you know. Uh, kudos to him for that. I think he did a great job there, just like making the most out of what was a pretty middling draft, honestly. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, I think we should just wrap this up. Do you want to close it, Yuki? So that concludes this week's episode of On the Bobble. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions that you'd like to have answered on the show, um, please comment on our most recent YouTube video or write me a message on Twitter, um, and we'll pull questions from there. You can also email jay at onthebobble at gmail.com um, if you want to send in any questions or feedback. Thanks for listening, and I hope you all have a great week. Okay, 
So for this week's sign-off, I just want to talk about one more story from the calling wheel, which I didn't quite tell. Um, so after top eighting, there was quite a bit of a delay getting our cold fo- our, our cold gold foils. Originally, I thought I was supposed to go up to the prize wall, and then they didn't have them, and they were like, "Oh, they're they're coming." And I don't know, so I was just kind of waiting around. <laughs> oh, and then they told coming. us, "Okay, wow, yeah, that's that's that's, yeah, uh, just... <laughs> that's that's a little worrying, but okay." Yeah, so I was just like, "Okay, that's weird." And then they called us up to the stage a number of times. They're like, "Oh yeah, come up to the stage, like by the feature match area." And then they're like, oh, actually, you're going to have to wait a little bit. And so it was like a little bit of like a back and forth and weird communication stuff. Anyways, what ended up happening is after the finals match concluded, um, we all got called up to the stage and James White handed us our sealed gold foils uh, personally and shook her hand. So that was kind of cool. And um, I was going to save mine to open up with some of my friends. I thought that'd be more fun. But I saw some of the um, sun, sunfire, sun, Sunflower Samurais, who is Pablo Pintor's um, team. I saw two of them who had top hated the calling opening their gold foils. So I thought I'd go over to, to watch. Oh, also, um, shout out to Pablo for top hating the Pro Tour after winning the last one. That's insane. Um, clearly, that guy is very good at flesh and blood. Anyways... Um, I see them opening their gold foils, and I figure I may as well go and watch. Uh, the first guy, Usagi, opens up a gold foil Shuko, so a pretty nice hit. And the second one opens up a gold foil New Horizon, um, which is the gold foil that I was hoping to, op- hoping to open. And after seeing him open it, I figure there's almost no way that I'm going to get it. And I decide to immediately crack open my gold foil and see if I can maybe trade for it if I hit something good. So um, I kind of go open up my gold foil. Everybody's watching. Um, I get a Spellbound Creepers, which is Ooh, quite a good hit. That's like, a good definitely one. a nice one. And um, I basically open it, take a little bit of a look, shine it in the light, and then immediately extend my hands with it and look at the guy that has the uh, the New Horizon. And I go, will you trade me? And um, And he does. He's like super happy too. We have a photo together that's on Twitter where we're all holding our gold foils and it looks like I have the new horizon, but there's actually a little bit of a story to how I got that one that I thought was kind of fun to share. Um, meant a lot to me that he was willing to trade that. And I think it worked out because I know that a lot of that team enjoys playing Runeblade. So yeah, but, but still, I, I felt like he did me a solid and it meant a lot to me and really kind of just was like a nice cherry on top of what was already a successful and very enjoyable weekend yeah sounds sounds like a good time and yeah you were you won with lexi like or did well with lexi at the last pro tour too and a lot of people know you as the lexi player it's great that uh now you can play with a gold foil um new uh new horizons you're not gonna sell it right you're just gonna keep it play with it now yeah i think i'm gonna keep it and play with it um I'll probably, I know that um, Premier Card Grading is releasing a new kind of slab that's supposed to fit in your deck box. So I'll probably wait until that's actually available and then get it actually slabbed in there. Just because it does, the the new gold foils are 
nine plus authenticated. And if I take it out of there, it's no longer nine plus authenticated. So it just seems like the best way to store it. I could put it in a screw down or something, but I don't know. The the gold foils are hard enough to come by that I think the grading service is probably worth it. So is the new gold foils with the casing, is it, can you pull, can you pop it open easily or is it like you have to like crack it? Um, so basically it's, it's packaged very similarly to before where there's the, um, there's like a plastic team bag and then there's a, like the LSS, the, the yeah, yeah, the black like packaging, yeah. LSS. yeah. And then inside it, there's the top loader, the gold foils inside, like a shrink wrapper, just like before. And then there's a, um, I don't know exactly how it's stuck on there, but it looks like a kind of like cardboardy papery thing stuck to the top and sealing the opening so it, it, it feels like there's something sticking it there i don't know exactly what it is i, I didn't want to tamper with it too much because i don't want it to <laughs> get unsealed it. but it, yeah. it does seem like there's no way to get it out without breaking that open in some way okay 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 but when you get it graded you'll have to think about that or or do something to it essentially <laughs> Yeah, I'll probably take it to them and ask them if I should open it or if they want to open it because I don't know exactly how that works. But I know that if I open it and put it in a sleeve, it can it's it might not be guaranteed to be a nine plus anymore. So it makes sense to just kind of wait. I think. Yeah, that seems fair. That seems fair. Okay, um, I think that wraps up today's episode. Anything else? Mm, no, that sounds good to me. All right. Um, good night, everyone. Good night.